You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. We live in an age of unprecedented technological change. And, you know, we're just a hop, skip, and a jump from Silicon Valley, and you can find everything. 3D movies, immersive, massive, multiplayer role-playing games, all of this stuff, television, radio, it all clamors for our attention. And yet, there's one technology, just one, it's almost half a millennium old, that still is effective and trumps all of these, and that We're all here because we read books, and the reading experience allows us, the people who read, to participate in the creation of the art. We are bonded and one with the people who write the books. They're the writers, we're the directors. And that's kind of an interesting turnaround for tonight's guy, because I remember back in 1993, I went and saw this movie in a repertory theater, it was a, you know, I don't know what made me see it. It was this weird little movie, but there was something about it that grabbed me. It was called Kronos. And it had this great uh, creature, this great little robot scarab at the center. And that was so interesting to me because it, on one hand, we had something that was scientific and technological, this weird little steampunk technology, but it was also magic. And that's where I think Tonight's guest lives. He lives at the place where the faith of religion can no longer sustain belief. He goes in his work to the place where the knowledge of science is no longer applicable. And in that bonding, right in the center there, he finds places where terror is transcended, transcends into awe, where mystery becomes the human experience, and where by God, we have one hell of a good time with a lot of really rotten monsters. <laughs> He's the director of Kronos, Mimic, Blade 2, Hellboy, Hellboy 2, The Golden Army, The Devil's Backbone, Pan's Labyrinth, more importantly to us because we're here because we read. He's the author with Chuck Hogan of The Strain, and his new book is The Fall. Ladies and gentlemen, please allow me to introduce Guillermo del Toro, author of The Strain and The Fall. when you really explore alchemy deep enough, 
it is philosophy. When you start really getting into philosophy, you touch alchemy. When you touch alchemy, you touch chemistry. When you go deep enough in chemistry, there are mysteries in it. I mean, the fact that I think that most of what we know is only that we know the nomenclature of things. We can name them with names that makes us sound important and that make things seem uh, uh, conceivable and classifiable. That doesn't mean we understand them. You know, when, when uh, I'm, I'm a huge fan of biology, and I'm obsessed by biology, medicine, those things. And I remember when we were researching mimicry for the movie Mimic, uh, I went to, to, the, um, uh, to the guys in, in UCLA and, and the entomology department, and I started quizzing them. And I said, and they said, well, it's an evolutionary trait, and obviously the insects that look more like leaves end up surviving, and, and, and this and that. And then I, I, the more I quizzed them, the less they knew. And, I, and eventually it came out, it came down to, we don't know shit. <laughs> I mean, they, really, when you come to it, it's like, well, we don't know that. And I think that, in my mind, we put too much uh, emphasis on knowledge and not enough emphasis on faith. And by faith, I don't mean denominational. Just the fact that we open to belief makes us wiser by, by like, a, any agnostic saying, we don't know. We don't know, but... Like Borges says, we don't know, but we suspect it all. You know, we, we have the inkling of the universe in us. And I think that uh, that's one of the things I'm interested in. I, I'm interested in, in proving that in spite of all the technology we have, when it comes down to it, we're in the Middle Ages. We're in the Dark Ages, you know? And many times I find myself, and it's not a joke, and I find myself, you know, after an hour of Google, I, I Googled fear. Or I Google things that are completely ungoogleable, you know, and, and I, I realize that 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 where I realize it's just a tool. It's a it's a silly tool uh, for uh, you know someone that doesn't want to go to the library or take the time or do the footwork, and 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 how incomplete it is. Books are incomplete, but the knowledge inside is not. And I think that one of the purposes of the strain is to show how easy it is to collapse society how easy it would be, how little it would be. You know, so the, the, the fall, when I was, we were arguing about what chapter to open the fall with, and I wrote the, the opening chapter that you have, which is uh, an extract of a diary that says it took the world only 60 days to end. And I really believe it could get to that, except that it, it, it will not end all of a sudden. There would be, I don't believe the world, the world will end quickly, ever. No matter what, humans may end up but, uh, but we will not end rapidly, and there will be no fantastical moment where we are, you know, looking for Twinkies in the in the in the aftermath of a <laughs> Holocaust. I mean, it really, sadly, but that's the terrain of fiction, and and the fiction of the apocalypse is one sub-genre in literature, I would guess, or, or that is fascinating because uh, I think that secretly every every person dreams of a the possibility of a barbaric time for a second, you know? And the possibility of a future barbaric time is as appealing as the past. And, and people are fascinated by the fact that at the end of the day, when all the rules are broken, when every taboo is broken, we go back to being pretty good human beings, I think. You know, and, and, and I, I, that's one of the things that I try to explore about magic, religion, all of the above. Uh, 
I was just recording Kronos out on Criterion Collection in December. And I was going through the notes. Uh, my notebook, uh, I don't have. I gave to Jim Cameron in a drunken stupor <laughs> in, in 1995. <laughs> we don't know where it is. Because <laughs> I think I put it over here. We can't find it. But, but we found the notes I gave to the crew of Alchemy and the notes I gave to the crew of Gothic. And the things that, that we were on during that movie are pretty interesting. And, and, and we, we were alchemically very correct. And we were really following principles enunciated in there. But as I said, I think it's one and the same, all of them. I, I love faith. I love, I love the idea of not knowing. And religion gets you And finally, to answer your first question, <laughs> finally, what I think is that uh, a lot of people uh, put faith in science or politics or geography, and I say all of that is bullshit. At the end of the day, geologically, you cannot prove me where Mexico ends and America starts. Geologically, you cannot tell me France is in this. There's no lines defining it. We invented them. We invented the laws. We invented the sense of justice that is collective, collective lynching for me. You know? We say, oh, it's okay to kill this guy in this and this case, but I mean, I, I find all that's, those things puzzling. You know, the ruling of a world in an adult way I find incredibly puzzling and incredibly uh, unfair and obviously controlled by a very small number of people. You know, and these are things also in the strain in the fall and moreover in, in, in the last book, which is uh, Motherfucker. <laughs> to, use a, to use a literary term. <laughs> you know, Jeremy, when you mentioned Mimic, it brought back memories to me because when I first was gatewayed into this fiction as a really young kid, um, there was this book called Monster Mix that came out from Scholastic, and it had this really bearish purple cover with all these monsters on it. And very last And I was wondering if you would talk about your gateway drugs and some of the stuff <laughs> that you've read that informs the strain and informs all your work and informs your vision of the world. Yeah, uh, many, many. It also brought memories for me, but I, I would need a doll to show you where they took me. <laughs> but but uh, you know the, I think that I started reading at such an early age. Uh, my father uh, in 1968 he won the lottery. He, he won six million dollars in 1968. Wow! Which uh, he was humongous. And one of the first things he was advised to do as a gentleman, as a new boy rich, they said you got to get a, a library. And so he built a library in oak, uh, land baron <laughs> desk, you know, and, and he bought a bunch of books, but he bought, very importantly, two encyclopedias. One was an art encyclopedia, and the other one was health and biology and medicine. And I, I, I didn't have any, many other books, so I read everything in the library, including those two encyclopedias. And I think that, uh, I just, and, and, and a few other pieces, you know, and I read them all religiously. I used to write in that gigantic desk, my father, I must have never stepped into that library ever again. He came in and left some checks that I found 20 years later. He never signed them. And, 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 uh, and I think that my gateway, very originally, curiously enough, was biology and anatomy. And I became the world's tiniest hypochondriac. You know, I, 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 used to, I used to say to my mother, I, I think I'm dying, I have cerebral edema or I have, uh, you know, mononucleosis, or I have, I mean, I, 
I would examine myself and say, oh, I would read the symptoms and go, oh, I have this for sure. <laughs> so, and I was always dying at that age. And, and, and in the art encyclopedia, I learned, uh, I was reading it along with my comic books, and I came, I came to, I, w I am very good at recognizing somebody's style. I can tell you a Corbin or a Wrightson or a Mobius or a, by watching one line, I can tell you when somebody's imitating them. But I can also identify Monet, Monet, Degas, you know, any, anybody. I, I, and for me, they have all equal value. So those were gateways, very important for me. As far as books, I think that one of, one of the first books, the first book I bought was an anthology by Forry Ackerman called The Best Horror Stories. <laughs> and A, they were not the best horror stories. <laughs> but B, there were a couple that were. You know, and I think that uh, at a very early age, I discovered Emma James. Uh, obviously, Lovecraft, um, Frankenstein absolutely destroyed my world. That that novel, for me, is like Paradise Lost. is is an absolute a proclamation of the soul being abandoned on Earth by by an uncaring creator. And I was I was so touched by it. And and the fact that the monster essentially said, "I have such love in me that you," I don't want to misquote it because I read it in Spanish first, but I have such love in me that you cannot imagine. And if I cannot give it cause, I will turn it into rage. And I understood that character so perfectly, you know, and I, and I, uh, and I read everyone, I mean, Victor Hugo was important for me as a kid. Charles Dickens was very important for me. Oscar Wilde was one of my favorites as a kid because his fairy tales, which are available to every kid, have such pathos, such uh, sense of doom, such a sense of loss, and, and uh, you know, I, I, I love them, but they were at the same time evidence of a really sensible, sensitive soul. You know, uh, a, a guy, Hans Christian Andersen, who is incredibly S and M. You know, <laughs> he was he was kinky, but I didn't feel the same way that I felt about Wild. They were dark tales, but I suspect that that guy flagellated himself in pure thoughts and. And, and so on and so forth. You know, I read, I started reading mostly horror. Uh, I'm not a fantasy guy, I'm not a sci-fi guy. Uh, if you went to my man cave, you would discover that one library is entirely dedicated to horror, but there is only two shelves for sci-fi, two, sorry, two bookshelves for sci-fi, and half a bookshelf to fantasy. And, uh, and I read mostly Lord Donsony or Clark Ashton Smith, Fantasy that is tinged with madness and darkness and loss and this and there. And, and if I read, I mean, I love Michael Moorcock. I, 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 that's my kind of elf, you know, an ass-kicking elf. But, but you know, uh, so you know, these are gateways for me. Ray Bradbury, the one man that everybody at 15 says, I'm going to imitate that guy. Because <laughs> the style is so there. And it seems so obvious. It seems so easy to write like Bradbury, and then you write crap. <laughs> crap written by someone that likes Bradbury. In the Spanish language world, and in Europe, I fell in love with one, a guy called Marcel Schwab, one of the fantastic, best, fabulous ever uh, friend of uh, Paul Claudel, in love with Camille Claudel, a tragic fantasist that I recommend anyone that can have access to him, go and get it. Borges, huge gateway for me. Juan Rulfo, 
for the Mexican writer, massive gateway for me. And Vito Gongrovitz, you know, the, the Argentinian refugee writer, and so on and so forth. I mean, my life has been as defined or more defined by books and art as it has been by movies. People say, oh, you're a movie director. I say, because that's the way I want to do literature. And that's the way I want to do painting. But it's not, it's not because only I wanted to just do movies. Sorry, that was your second question. We are so screwed. <laughs> you know, one of the things that makes these, these books, The Strain, so wonderful is your ability to evoke sympathy for even the most despicable characters. I mean, the, the uber, uber bad guys in this, and I'm not going to say too much about them. I'll, I'll let you talk as much as you want. You know, we actually like and respect them. We understand what they were doing. They may, I mean, it may just be their inclination that they want to enslave and wipe out much of humanity. But, but we get that. So I'd like you to talk about how you create your sympathy for all your characters. Well, you know, I think that uh, when, I remember when I was going to do Blade, when I was talking to David Goyer and Wesley Snipes, I used I came up with my biology book and my sketches and everything that I was able to put in there for the Reapers. And I said, look, I don't understand Blade for sure. I don't. If I met those vampires, I would hang out with them. You know? But I understand the vampires. And I understand the tragic central vampire, Nomad. And, and I, I try to very much, little by little, make you understand the, the bad guys. Even the bad guy in Pan's Labyrinth, or the bad guy in Devil's Backbone, when people say, that they dislike the fact that they are bad, 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 bad guys. I said, you didn't watch the movie carefully enough. I'm sorry. You know, it, there are uh, gateways and, and needs in there that, that would allow you to understand it. I, I think that in the strain, one of the deals I made with Chuck early on, I said, we need to start these books, and by the second book, characters that you like are going to be doing things we don't like, and characters that you dislike are doing things that we like. And by the third book, we're really going to screw with people. <laughs> and, and, and things are going to really go around that is not safe. And, and, and I really think that by the third book, when we understand where vampirism comes from in, in the reformulation of the mythology, people are going to find it magical in a different way than it's ever been. You know? But, but uh, I think that is much more understanding. Look, we, we live in a society, and I've said this in the past, so forgive me if I'm repeating myself, but if we live in a society that constantly tells us to be perfect. You know, never let them see you sweat. Don't have this. Look the best you can. Have perfect teeth. Look great. Have great hair. Wear great shoes. Uh, all this crap. And I find that incredibly castrating, incredibly horrifying that we live, that the model, social model, is perfection. The social model should be imperfection. We would more, we would live much more comfortably with that. And I, so you know, what I like to do is to say it's great to look like shit. You can see that. You know? It's great to, it's great to not be great. It's not, it's great not to be pure. It's great to be kind of half crazy, because we all are. At the end of the day, look, the guys that hide it the most are the guys that, when they're alone, think the worst shit. You know, all those guys that are giving a fucking sermon and they're, you know, 
singing this and singing that in whatever denomination you choose. I don't want to be in their heads when they're alone. I don't want to. I, I, they don't want to be really scary places. Politicians, <laughs> Jesus, I love that scare me. You know, and, and the fact that I think that, but we judge them like that. We know we like to say, when we see a politician that fucked around, we go, ooh, he shouldn't be in office. No, he should be in office. This is fine. And I'd rather somebody's fucking around than destroying the world. You know, and, and I really wonder how we fucked up our principles to such a degree. And, and I try to, I think the best example of all that, sorry for the language, is my second language. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of things I don't understand. <laughs> but but what, I, what I think is, how did we screw, how did we screw, forget about morals, I don't like morale, I like ethics. How did we screw ethics so bad that we enthrone shit that looks good but is bad? And we don't enthrone shit that looks bad, but it's good. I just don't understand. <laughs> well, one of the things I think that I always loved about horror, and I think it's clear you do too, is its ability to allow the writer to externalize that shit and bring it out. And, yeah, oh my god. Hey, it's my first language. I know what I'm saying. I'm a professional, ladies. One of the things you do in The Strain, which is so wonderful, is you turn. You have the ability because you've got this vampire thing going to turn these characters. Their inner traits become their external traits, and that is a hell of a lot of fun to watch happen. Well, monsters are living metaphors. That's the thing I like the most. When you go to a church, I, I mean, I, I love Gothic architecture. And when we go to a church, I explain my wife the little hidden meanings or the alchemical stuff. I say, look at the window. And I, I don't go the Vinci code on her, but it comes to us, you know, I can say, look, you know. Uh, and, 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 but, but the thing that entertains me the most is looking at the gargoyles. You know, the gargoyles are, they're so much more full of life because they're just there. You know, they're, they're, they're really, physically, they feel like they belong to that environment. Much more than the saints that are all fucking stiff and, you know, they, they really seem, seem uncomfortably fitting in the architecture. The gargoyle is just hanging and vomiting and looking at people. And really, it's beautiful to find. Well, that's what we're all doing on Sunday mornings. <laughs> Sunday morning and Saturday. And the next one, Friday, is the weekend. But, but I think that, I think that uh, monsters are the embodiment of concepts. Monsters are living metaphors. Now, the, the, the dangerous thing is to cipher them to a point where they become equation quantities. You know, where we say, oh, this monster only represents this. They are not that. They are more than that. I think that we live in a world where we have, uh, because we have enthroned intellect. You know, it started in the age of reason. That was the beginning of our doom, when when people started saying how great reason was. And then, you know, more mercifully for all of us, the romantics came and enthroned emotion again through the Gothic romance and through painting and through poetry, uh, graveyard poetry and all that. But I think that. Emotions uh, is so much more important. Reason destroys monsters. You know, anybody that is rational says, ah, "You read that crap." You know, I read this and I read that, and I think that uh, horror is one of the few open gates to spirituality we have left. You know, because what we call in fiction the suspension of disbelief is belief. Is as close as we get in the modern era to faith. You know, and when we, I don't care if people say, oh, you know, you must hate 
bilaterally was I said, I don't hate any of them. I don't, I, it doesn't build my banana. But I don't hate it. Anything that gets you believing in anything beyond this crappy, mundane reality, I'm happy with. Because we are, we are mammals. We are physical beings. We anthropologically need uh, violence and reproduction and food and territoriality, all that I agree with. We're also spiritual animals, and we need to nurture the spirit. And most of the nurturing of the spirit we get comes with a lot of shit attached. We have to donate to a church and obey a cer certain motherfucker, and we got to listen. You know, in, the great thing about horror is we don't have to obey anyone. We, have to, we can choose who we follow. We can choose if we read an author or not, if we watch a movie or not, if that guy screwed up or not in that movie, worst movie ever, best movie ever, doesn't matter. It's a free, it's a beautiful free spiritual experience in film and in, in books and this. So art, you know, Magritte said that the beauty of art is to evoke mystery. And I think mystery is, is faith for us for us to believe in something that is not there, that is the whole purpose of art and the religious purpose of art. And monsters, like angels, were born at the same time. They were born at a time where we were afraid of the night, afraid of the thunder, afraid of all these cosmological realities. And we created a cosmogony to explain them. We said, oh, well, you know, a serpent comes out of the earth and eats the moon and then shifts the sun or whatever we wanted to invent. And, but then we started having a link to that serpent and a link to that, that, that deity. And it is so lonely when we feel there's nothing else. It's so fucking lonely and purposeless when we believe there's nothing else. And the idea with the three books is to destroy everything. And in the end, in the third book, something happens, but I will not tell you what it is. It's still a year away. We may change our minds. You know, you're talking about this kind of faith and, and reason, and I think that's one of the real appeals of books, is because when you read a book, it's just words on a page, yet somehow you turn those words into something that's completely unreal and completely involved, and you enter another world. And one of the things I think you guys do really well is take our world and turn it in a second to another world. Yet it seems familiar, it seems real, it seems terrifying. It seems like a lot of fun. I, I, I want to be out there uh, with the vampire killing squads. Yeah. Well, in the idea, uh, there's, in the first book there was an episode that is, I wrote Taken verbatim from my childhood, which was the episode of Zach waiting by the window. And that happened to me in my grandmother's house. We lived in a very empty street, and I used to sit by the window, and, and I would go, you know, until 4 a.m., 5 a.m., just thinking. And I would say, what if somebody walks by on the empty street? And I would start to scare myself. And then I would say, what would happen if that person doesn't look quite right? And then I would say, and what happens if that guy turns around and looks straight at me? And I would go, oh shit, I would have to do it. You know? but, but, but the fact is that uh, it, these things, uh, they, they, are, they are substantiating. The words are substantiating a moment. The, the writers I admire the most are writers that are able to evoke a central empathy. And by central, I don't mean HBO after midnight, you know, I, I, mean, I mean central in the senses, you know, it, they, 
when you're reading them, you know how it tastes, you know how it looks, you know how it smells. And, and, and for example, one of the things I'm very proud is every time we went into one of the drainings in the books, I go into absolutely your dare moment. You know, because I don't want the whole Winona writer languishing in the arms of Brad Pitt. Yeah, well, you know, if they're gonna suck you like that, go ahead, you know, like, fine, suck me now. But, but you know, it's not gonna be a pale, beautiful god girl. It's like this, you know, in the second book, one, one of the vampires grabs the guy, pushes the mouth, the, the dirty fingernail slices the gum, the blood explodes in the mouth, and the guy smells the hand of the vampire and says, it smells like moldy oranges, you know? And because they're so dirty, they've been there for so long, and I wanted to be there. I wanted to feel, you know, like a like a Florida juice carton being soft, right? You know, and the feeling that you're literally, if you have donated blood, the moment where they suction the blood out of the vein is not pleasant. Now, if you multiply that by 10, but the, that's, that's one of the things. We try to evoke that, but we try to evoke the thrill of the hunt also, for example. And there is a passage, um, that I wrote in, in the fall where uh, I talk about Fed, the Red Exterminator, and I say there are some men that were born for the fall. They were born for the moment the world ceases to exist socially, and they can go out, and they can be anything. They can be your HBO service person, they can be your mailman, they can be your grocer, and all of a sudden in the post-world, in the post-apocalyptic world, they are great warriors. They are the guys that legends are gonna be born out of. And I think that uh, those are things we try to evoke here. And I try to take the most screwed, racked up bunch of heroes and make them count. And I try to get the people that are important in our world, like the billionaire, Eldridge Palmer, and show that they are the worst of the human race. And then I take a Mexican gang banger and a, and a Mexican mask wrestler, and I write them a love poem. And I literally, I wrote that chapter on the character of the Mexican wrestler because I always felt there must be a movie, there must be a book, there must be a story, there must be something where we don't have, we have a really great moment where a 60-year-old retired ex-wrestler with a broken knee, overweight, fat, clogged arteries, puts on the mask for one last time to fight a vampire, and no one laughs. I wanted to write that since I was 15. And, and you know all these things come to fruition in the strain, and, and you know they are uh, fulfilling a fantasy that both Chuck and I have. I mean, in my case, since I was a kid, Chuck got into it very fast, and we have a great partnership together. You know, there's lots of for for a novel that features you know a large number of humans with stingers flicking out of their throats and draining one another dry. There's a lot of really poignant moments in there, and. That's, I think, uh, what makes the book so effective. And you talked about the um, how you described the, uh, the smells of what happens. But uh, the other thing I think is just so phenomenal is the scenes where people feel themselves being transformed. That that is just really a rock and deal. Thank you. We have we have I, I, one of the scenes. I, uh, I mean, Chuck wrote one of the best quiet scenes in the book in the fall which is a dinner between Eldridge Palmer and F. And it's such an evil, delicious little dinner. You know, where, uh, he, he, those are the moments that I love. And, and I remember in the first book, I wrote a moment where one of the characters is turning 
and, and he feels himself draining and he feels the hunger and, and water will not quench the thirst and, and he has this thing growing inside him and he feels rage and he feels hunger and, and he, he cannot express what it is and then he's a family man and at the end of the passage says, well, he always would have his children, they will have to do. But I was, it's a double meaning, he will always have them to support him, but he's also going to have dinner one day, you know? And, 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 and quiet moments were like the, when the wife chains the guy to the shed. Horrible, because the tradition in European vampire lore was that the vampire comes back to the family and vampirizes the nucleus, the family, and then they all come out into the world and infect the world. And I thought that was so pernicious that one of the first things we discussed, Chuck and I, I said the real virus of these vampires is, is love. They go after the ones they love. It's not a zombie that doesn't give a crap. They, if you see them on the street, they already killed anyone that they love. And in the second book, I wrote a whole arch, a big character that we took out. But I, I wrote, I, I sent Chuck four chapters and Chuck read them, and he was very nice, but he said, I, I don't see why we, why we care about him. And then our editor, David Highfield, said, I don't see why he's not one of our characters. And so we, I cannibalized pieces of it here and there, and including the moldy orange now. <laughs> but the, the route, if you're interested, the route of that character was that he was a manager in an office depot warehouse. He gets killed or, or transformed one night. And then he gets an incredible longing to visit his father in New Jersey. You know, he, he cannot cross because the bridges are closed. And he climbs into a, an office depot truck. And he goes all the way as he turns. When the, when the truck opens in New Jersey, he's a vampire. And he goes to the old folks home and meets his father one last time. And it was a really nice art, but yes, it was not one of our guys. You know, one of the things that I think is uh, so effective about uh, these books is how uh, they're paced and, and the, the, your overall plot arc is really tight and we can never get away for a second. These are books that literally can sit down and read in about one sitting. And, and you know, you, you, they're, uh, they're books you better, better read than can. <laughs> He's not going to be getting up in the bathroom. Yeah, exactly. Well, the best, the best compliment I got, and, and it will live forever, I don't know what he felt at the end, but is, is I, I got an email from Stephen King on the first book. Oh. And he wrote me and said, reading the strain, loving it. Love the back and forth between characters. A lot of people try that shit, not anyone makes it, you guys do. You know? And I was like, I said, look, I, before we wrote the books, I said, look, Chuck, there's got to be smart assholes that are going to say, at least take a stream Because I'm a filmmaker, so they're going to say, like I said, so let's make a deal. You know, the only thing we're going to assume from cinematic cliches or form is that we're not going to do much introspection. We're going to do the tool in film is you learn about your characters by what they do. It's very rarely that you get a good movie, Tarantino does it, where the characters explain themselves. You know, but it's, it's a very rare gift. And you, I'm like Bradbury, Tarantino. 
He's like, I had a lot of filmmakers go, that's easy. No, man, because like Bradbury, he has such a clear voice that you go, that must be easy to do. So everybody's like, motherfucker, motherfucker, and then it doesn't achieve anything. Because it, it's not coming from the gut, you know, and you're not Quentin Tarantino, you should find your own voice and so forth. And what, what we said, we are going to let them define themselves by the way they react to others. We're going to stay outside them as much as possible. Little introspection. The second thing we said is rhythm. Rhythm needs to be cinematic. We go to here, we come back here, we go. And, and uh, every time I do an action scene, uh, or I lay out a big uh, scene like in Treblinka when it needs to have a geography and a reality, I lay it out like I would lay out uh, a shoot. I make a map, I, I know where everybody is, I go to the, to the uh, uh, transit office in New York, I, I, I get the blueprints, I, I get the layout, I know where uh, the line ends, I know where, you know, I try to lay it out like an action scene. Hitchcock used to say, you need to be very specific about geography and, and try to be as real as possible. I love when you read a book, when you read Lovecraft and you go to Providence and you see the, the house he based this on that, or that, you know, it's great. And, and uh, neither Chuck nor I were are New Yorkers, so we had to fake it. We had to fake it with a lot of, a lot of documentation. So, you know, I, I used to get Chuck's chapters and say, dear Lord, Chuck really is a New Yorker. <laughs> and Chuck would get my chapter and say, oh man, this, this guy must have been there. And I was on, on Mimic. By the way, I've seen the sewers of every city I've seen. I am a sewer addict, and <laughs> you know, I'm Bragg, the most beautiful sewers I've ever seen. Gorgeous sewers. Paris, great sewers. Vienna, oh, <laughs> monumental sewers. So, you know, sewers and subways I can cope with. But, you know, we bring a lot of uh, documentation. You know, the, the other thing I like about your, your books is this kind of a creaky, I almost steampunk kind of feel that because you have science being so ineffectual, you really un give us this picture of the limits of what we, you know what we don't know, and you take us there, and then you drain us dry. <laughs> well, I think that I'm a big fan of certain fetishes in my movies and, and what I write. I love things in jars. I do. They kind of get me excited. I, I love gears. I love, and I love more than anything. I love the K, and I love the K because I think, uh, you know, in the European tradition, not in the New World, but in the European tradition, there is a, a sense of beauty and grace to the K, sure. you know, and, and and a sense of almost religious and spiritual uh, dimension to the K, you know, and, and I think that we negated a lot. And so I, I think that it's great to to take uh, people that were scientific. We, I, I wrote in the original draft of Mimic, the character of Mira Sorvino, who was an entomologist, there was a moment where they they were asking her, like in every horror B movie, what do we do next? And she would she turned and said, why are you asking me? Do you think I know anything? I'm sorry, what? Six foot tall bug. You know, like, do you think that I, I hold my little manuals? You know, it, it is really great to take somebody from the CDC and talk about the magical properties of silver and try to explain them in chemical terms. But I think that we find it fascinating because science has become one of the few religions we believe in. 
you know? If there is a photograph, or if there is a guy telling us how it is, and it gives us enough of an alibi, we believe it, you know? It's, it's become, so the line is very fine. But then, then, and this, everybody knows, when you talk about a viral threat, everybody becomes a caveman. Everybody becomes superstitious. Bird flu, oh fuck, he's gonna kill us all. You know, pig flu, fuck, we're gonna die. Anthrax, don't open your fucking mail. Don't touch anyone, don't kiss anyone, don't breathe near anyone. Wear those stupid little masks that do shit but look horrible. On them. You know? And we revert, if you stop somebody wearing that mask, chances are that 99% of those people cannot A, tell you what disease does, B, how it is transmitted, how it operates, or even if that stupid mask is gonna do anything. But we revert. They are not scientific devices. They are talismans. They are talismans. So the border between faith and science, the border between superstition and science, is blurred. The amount of crap I was hearing today on NPR, they were talking about the, 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 uh, somebody putting a, a recall on that famous pomegranate juice pump because they were making false claims that it cleans the arteries. And, you know, it, it does, there's no difference between that and a guy in the old west saying, it will heal you from, it, uh, selling you an elixir, you know, doctor so-and-so's elixir. It really, why? Because we want to believe. And at the end of the day, the more desperate we are to believe, the more we hide it. The more we hide behind science and an iPad and an iPod and, and this and that. I, I love it. I'm a technology geek. But at the end of the day, you know, it's what fascinates us about these things are the things that they do that are above human. And at the end of the day, they become little altars. They do become little altars that we go for advice. We, we genuflect and pray for Google to have the answer. You know, it, it really is fascinating when you think about it, how close science and technology get us to faith and animistic absolutely atavistic belief. So those are things I, I, I don't write them because I find them interesting. I write them because they occupy my mind all the time. You know, I, I, I argue that I never, never, ever get bored, ever. You can put me, I always, I, I, I mean, I, I haven't robbed the bank, I may. But, 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 because I would really like that. But, but I, I always say, then I would survive in solitary confinement because my whole fucking childhood was solitary confinement. Oh, God. You know, but because if you have this and you, and you are capable of observing even minuscule things, you will be in there. I'm going to ask you one last question and we'll open this up for questions from the audience. But what I want to ask you is by you use the word talisman. And that made me think of something that I really love about your writing, is that we look at the world and we see, you know, there's a light up there and, and this stuff. But I think also we look at, at, we experience it in terms of symbols and omens. And so I know that every morning when I get out there on the beach at 4.30 in the morning, I'm running, if I see Joe and his terrier, I know I'm going to have a good day. Yeah. So I always make sure I'm there to see Joe and his terrier. And I love the way that you look at the world and the strain in the fall and show us these kind of omens, the things that imply that our whole world can easily fall apart. I mean, look, I, I am I'm, I'm, a, I'm a guy that believes because I choose to believe, not because I have any proof or any denomination told me to. 
I, I believe everything has a soul. It makes it better, and everything has a soul. Uh, I hate that we live in a society where if the TV is broken, if you look in the yellow pages, there's this many TV repairmen. We go to Best Buy and buy a new one. That's fucked up. If the blender breaks, there's no one that repairs it. It costs more than a new blender. So what do we do? We get a new blender. But I grew up uh, as a kid naming everything. Naming, I was best friend, you know, this is gonna tell you how fucked up my childhood was. I named every ant in an ant hill in my grandmother's garden. And I, and I believed I could identify a little guy that was my pal, you know? And I used to talk to that bug, you know? But, you know, as silly as it is, I, I, I named my car. I, I, we called my car, which is an eight-year-old Chrysler. We called, we called him El Guapo, the handsome guy. And, and, I, and I caressed the steering wheel and said, come on, Guapo, take me. I talked to the car. I'm fucked up. But, but I tell you, in a way, in a way, these things make the world better because I believe if you experience the world believing that everything has importance, because nothing has importance. You know, if you come, you come to the same conclusion. If everything is unimportant, you can choose to make everything important. At the same time, and I think that if we forget to do that, if that is frowned upon, if that makes us sappy or silly or stupid, I think it's much more silly and stupid not to believe that anything is of any importance. I, I love my shoes. When a shoe, when a pair of shoes is good to me, I hold to them until they crumble. Because they are my shoes. They are not one of my shoes. They are my shoes. They fit me. I love them. You know, my books, when I wrote in my notebooks, I love these books. They are the only thing that my children are going to be able to experience about me without me in the middle explaining it to them. They're going to see their dad in those pages. You know, they're going to be able to get a glimpse here and there. And the same is with my books. And, and I remember where, where I was when I bought almost every book. I remember where I was when I saw almost every movie. And if I don't, it's a sadder way of seeing them. You know, I really think it's a sadder experience. The worst invention mankind ever did was comfort. And and that's the thing that, where they, that they used to extract money from you and drain your soul. We are delivering them to your computer for your own comfort. Fuck you. <laughs> and we all fall because we all need them. I have Ken Russell's The, the, the Devils in my computer because I cannot buy it any other way. I have 700 movies in my, in my Apple. And, and, you know, because they are little altars, little things that I can carry. But at the same time, it is sadder when we get MP4s, when we get MP3s, when we don't remember who we were with browsing. You know, when even porn as a kid, you need to go to the drugstore and say, My dad said to get in the National Geographic, to get in Esquire, oh and that thing that my dad reads Playboy. And they would never sell it to you. It was pretty sad. But that, everything now is, is available available and instant and therefore much less important. And I think if we create a talisman model for things, we then almost make a sacrament of each act. And it makes our lives richer. So the ritualization of things 
is very important in my books and in my movies, and I, I try to imbue the objects with almost literary meaning. You know, I try to craft them in a way that will make them memorable. It, in, it, when Hellboy has the gun in the movies, he calls him the Samaritan. That's not from the comics. Mike hates that. Mike says, it's not. You know, when he's signing, can you draw the Samaritan? He says, I don't draw the Samaritan. That's a turtle. You know? But I, I, how, how can Hellboy have a gun and not name it? You know? and, and when he names it the Samaritan, you mean something, you know why? Because it deliver, it brings deliverance to those that suffer. You know, but you know, so I try to craft the Chronos device in a fetishistic way. I try to craft the Book of Crossroads in Pan's Labyrinth in a fetishistic way. And I try to, I always tell, and we're going to talk about movies for a second. I always say that the literature of film is audiovisual. That if you, you know, when you design a character. He should be able to tell you who he is exactly in the first 10 seconds of him appearing or her appearing on the screen. You know, and the captain in, in, in Pan's Labyrinth, we designed him visually to be martial, to be tight, to be uh, absolutely rigid, perfectly groomed, a, a gentleman fascist. And in sound, <laughs> we designed him to creak. We, every time he moves, leather creaks. Oh, God. Because he's so fucking tight, he's so rigid. He, you know, he's, he, he would shed and do her past. You know, these guys really, you know, things are in its place. You know? So every time you see the movie, the creaking of the ladder. You know, and I think that, and when people say, "Well, your characters, you know, that, that they're this or that," I say, you know, we need to differentiate between creating dramaturgy, meaning something we inherited from theater a play, the play of the movie, and writing movies. And I think that half of the movie needs to be written beyond the play. You know, the moment Darth Vader comes in on the fucking screen, you have no doubts. You're going to go, who is that guy? <laughs> <laughs> is he one of the good guys? <laughs> no, and I think that, that's, that's, and that's one of the things that we try, you said very nicely, on the screen. Uh, one of the things that is harder in literature is the reveal. When you finally get to it, some people never get to it. You know, Rebecca uh, by Daphne de Maria. You never know what her name is. You never know what the character's name is. Is she? Is me? Is I? You know, and and you really never get a complete description. Lovecraft in *The Mountains of Madness*. Most of the names of the characters are left vague. Most of them are never described. But their function defines. And in the book, we, when the time comes to describe Cetrachian or F, you know, we're very careful what we use as visual clues. I mean, that, I hope that answer. I don't even remember the question. <laughs> I want to say one more thing about books, and this goes back to the way you write. Books, like these hardback things that everybody's got in their last year, paperbacks, whatever you have, the thing that's so great about them is they have a smell. Yeah. They have a feel. And, and, you know, when you go back and you open that book up again for the first time in 10 years, you go, oh, my God, the last time I read that book, I was sitting in a taqueria in Santa Cruz. I was. And, and that's why I think it's important that, that, that they are fetishistic, that you remember, I hope you remember, we were together today, that we had this talk, that I saw your book, that I signed it, that we talked for a second, that we talked for two minutes, whatever, you know. Books cannot be about knowledge or stories only. They are about experiences. 
I used to drive my wife when we were dating. She would. She was studying veterinary. She's a veterinary surgeon. I still wake up waiting to be neutered. I used to drive her two and a half hours uh, and two and a half hours back on the weekend. And, and, and when I waited for her in the town where she was studying, I, I remember I, what I was reading. I remember I was reading a story by Harlan Ellison, or I was reading a Sturgeon, a Theodore Sturgeon story, which one it was, if I cried or I didn't cry. And I think that the more we subtract these memories from something material that we can go back to, and the more we don't link whatever we have materially to something spiritual, the world becomes instantly a dreadful, dreadful place where where things become banal and mundane and boring. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, do any audience members have questions? There's a microphone right up there. Walk right up. Ask your question now. Or raise your hand. Or raise your hand. Just. Uh, I'll repeat the question. I have a question. Um, is there a movie you've seen in the past uh, five or ten years that really kind of blew you away and really, you know, kind of made you say, like, yeah, this is this is the reason I go to movies and this is the reason I make movies? You wanted to know if Guillermo has seen a movie in the past five to ten years that really blew him away and it told him, this is why I make movies, this is why I go to movies? Guillermo. Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, in the honor, the last one that did that to me was like the right one in. I saw that movie. They sent me, they sent me that, that movie on DVD to see if I would give them a quote for the poster. And I, 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 mean, I, I did. I gave them a quote for the poster and the publicity, but it completely destroyed me. I was, and I had vampire envy. I was, I was, I said, you know, everything I tried to do, this guy did. And, and fuck me blue. <laughs> How did he do it? And you know what? I don't want to know. I don't want to know how he did it. I don't want to like, it's one of those movies that I don't want to dissect or learn what works or not. You know, it just destroyed me. I think things that destroy you are very useful. Uh, in other, you know, there are people that I, I know are going to kick me in the ass every time they come out. David Cronenberg. You know, every time he's on the bat, I'm waiting for a home run. You know, uh, Satoshi Kon and animation. Miyazaki, you know, uh, uh, every time, you know, there, these are the things, and here's where those are important. It's not because they are David Fincher, motherfucker. You know? <laughs> Zodiac, I watch Zodiac religiously, obsessively, and the, it's a disease, Zodiac, for me. I, I just, it's in a loop in my head, you know? And, and, and why are those important? Because you know why we go to movies? If Theodore Sturgeon had a law that said 90% of everything is shit. And he was right. But you know what happens when they work? When they work, they touch us in a place that is deeply spiritual. And it becomes like going to church. Because they speak to us in a way that is so direct and no other art form does. Theater doesn't do it. Literature doesn't do it. Painting doesn't do it. Not that way. Not that little corner that they expertly fondle. You know, they they really go there. And uh, uh, Clive Barker, in, in in a great short story called The Skins of the Fathers. Oh my God! He was he meant it literally, but he said, "And deep inside her, in a place only touched by monsters." 
I really think that's a place, when I see a great horror movie, nothing else makes me as happy. Nothing. Nothing makes me as happy as believing in a new monster, a new creature, this and that. But we go, and we, we, go, we go to movies, why? For the same reason that other people go to church. 90% of the time you go to church is boring as fuck. You know, but there are moments, there are those 10% moments where if you are deeply religious, there are moments of relation. There are moments where you connect with the things that were figures, with the, the, the sermons that were just words. With you. And it's collective. Yeah. And I think there is a value to it being collective. You know, and there's a value if you like a book to tell people to read that book. You know, and, and to tell people to see that movie. And it's it's so much easier for me, so much easier to talk about the stuff you love than the shit you hate. You know, and, and I find that nowadays a lot of our communication in, in fan groups has become to talk about the shit we hate. And I find that really, really sad. Because, you know, I really think that, I remember when we were kids and movies were magical things that happened once, once. If you wanted to see a movie again, it was a miracle. You had to go to the cinematic. And you talk about that movie for years. When I saw Alien as a kid, I went back and people didn't believe me that there was such a movie. And I was the only guy back going, it is true! <laughs> it comes out like that! <laughs> <laughs> you know, so I, I love I, I love other people's things. I think that one of the things we cannot afford, whether we're amateurs or professionals, is to stop loving the medium we do. No matter what you work in, no matter what you do, no matter who you work for, what enterprise, what movie, what this, what that, you know, you need to kick ass and make it own it. Because if you don't own it, you're still gonna go through it. It's still going to be shitty, but you're not going to get anything out of it. We have a question over there. Hi. Uh, I understand that you are doing Frankenstein with uh, Bernie Wrightson. And I'm wondering if it's a different process for you to translate somebody else's work for the movie rather than something of your own creation. He's doing Frankenstein with Bernie Wrightson, and she wants to know about the process transforming someone else's work. I don't think there is such a barrier. Okay. I don't think it exists. And I tell you why. My movies are your movies if you like them. You know, the moment you like one of my movies and you own it, you own it with me. You know, you can do anything you want with it. You can draw the pale man or, or, or the ghost and change it or write a piece about it. Art is there to be put out and be owned by everyone. And when I saw Bernice Frankenstein, it was my Frankenstein. I didn't draw it, I didn't do the lines, but fuck me if that Frankenstein was not the Frankenstein <laughs> I dreamed as a kid. You 
you know? So what I think is we partner with Bernie. And, and I, I, I honor his ideas as much as mine in the way that I partner with Mignola. But my Hellboy is different than his Hellboy, if you want to be a purist. And some people dislike my Hellboy and like his better, but bless, because they are different, and they should be. Because adapting, quote unquote, I always say, is like marrying a widow. You have to be respectful of the memory of a late husband, but on Saturday, you got to fuck. You have to get out of the business at some point. And you're not going to be saying, oh, it was Mignola, it was a fucking, you know, like, and we're doing Frankenstein together. It's not Bernie's Frankenstein, it's not Mary Shelley's, it's what we all are going to we're jamming. And we're going to jam together and show you and tell you and sing you a story of a Frankenstein that has never been told. Now, if I thought I was going to tell it in the same way it has already been told, by Bernie in the book, I would finance a reprint of the book. I would tell Bernie, let me, you know, I just financed uh, a book that is coming out in a couple of weeks. It's, it's a book about Harry Housen. Uh, volume number two came out, and the guy was going volume two, volume three, volume one. After volume two, he couldn't finance it. It was too expensive, no editorial, no publisher would finance it. And I said, I'll finance it because I want to have the book. And, and, you know, and he said, you know, very likely my manager said, you're going to lose the money. I said, but I'm going to gain the book. You know, so if I believe that Ernest Frankenstein was it, that there is no other way of telling the story, I wouldn't be making the book. So, you know, we're going to all be, it's like a big party and everybody brings, brings roast. And we're all going to have a feast. It's a joke. Yeah. I love it. Some people are arguing that 3D is a bit of a gimmick, and Hollywood's really using it. So I'm just curious how you feel about that, and whether that makes sense to address that. Is asking about 3D? Yeah. If it's a gimmick, or what do I think? I don't think anything is a gimmick. I think a gimmick is lazy filmmaking. When people complain about CGI, oh, too much CGI, no, too little filmmaking. It's not, it's not too much CGI. It's lazy motherfuckers that say, we'll fix it in post. Those guys exist since fucking Chaplin. You know, I mean, I think that, that those guys were doing silent movies. We'll fix it in post, and they would. You know, it, it, it's not a new thing. You know, by the way, I love Chaplin. I didn't mean him. I, he's my hero, along with Buster Keaton. But I, I think that what I'm trying to say is, uh, 3D is another tool. Now, I refuse to do the Hobbit 3D. I plainly said no, 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 and I kept saying no until I left, because I don't think that's that's a story or a tale that benefits from 3D myself. They may end up doing it or not, I don't know, but not everything. I don't want to see the man who laughs in 3D by Victor Hugo or Pride and Prejudice in 3D. <laughs> I don't want to see Mr. Darcy's bag and shoes. <laughs> I'm not interested in seeing crime and punishment in 3D. No, there are certain things that, however, lend themselves to 3D. I'm going to do the Mountains of Madness in 3D. Because I think Lovecraft is, yes, a great writer, but he's also pulp. And we do as much of the service to that tale by negating the high literature content as we do negating the pulp. You know, 
that's perfectly assumed, but Tolkien is endeavored as precious in a different way. Uh, Victor Hugo, I'm sure, never thought of the man who laughs in dreaming. You know, and I think that if you do it for the right reasons, look, what attracts me to 3D is not a tentacle shooting out of the screen and everybody going, ooh, is the depth, is the depth of it, is the fact that it can be immersive. I have, my first introduction to 3D was one morning with Jim Cameron, we spent together, him explaining to me everything I needed to know. I mean, you can't beat that shit. You know, he was there, he was saying, look, uh, we spent all morning, then we have uh, shrimp cocktails in a Mexican restaurant. <laughs> I hope he didn't get that area. But he said something completely zen and wonderful, and he was completely Miyagi. I said, you know, I was talking about planes, and you know, he was talking about focal this, this, and I said, well, you know, when you when the screen is over here and the this, and he turned to me and he said, what screen? There is no fucking screen. I go, ooh. <laughs> and, but I understood. I understood that the more you make people aware of the screen, the worse the job you're making. You know, and therefore, the experience of 3D is not the gimmick you want. It's not the guy that drops the pencil and the pencil comes out and you go, whoa, whoa, you know. Is, is the moments of quiet beauty. The most absolutely astonishing shot in Avatar for me was a shot early on when they go to Pandora and, and there's a POV of the forest. And you see the gleaming of the light and the little particles floating in the dust and the leaf in the foreground uncovers the foliage behind. You know, the depth of it amazed me. And I think that uh, when people think about 3D, they think about House of Wax and the racket, you know, the ball coming back and forth. I think there are better uses. I love that movie, by the way. And oh my God, there's fetishistic shit in that movie. All over the place. But I, I think there's more things than that. There's more things that coming at you. So there is no such thing as a bad tool. In the 80s, anyone here lived through the 80s and the excessive gore? When I was, it was too many makeup effects. And then too many, and I keep saying to people, there's not such a thing as too many. There's such a thing as too little. You know, too little art, too little filmmaking, too little interest. We've got time for two more questions. Two more questions. How about right up front here? Um, Dobry den. Dobry den. Um, so my question is, um, as a filmmaker, you know that there are certain limits to how much the audience can actually know about the character, and you said that the character has to show their actions in order for the audience to understand them. So as a writer now, how did you use that medium to kind of express yourself more since the boundaries are bigger? That's an excellent question. Uh, I'll give you examples from both mediums so that we can know the difference. When I was writing Pencil Labyrinth, one of the first things that some well-intentioned producers used to tell me is we, we need to see the girl reading more because she loves books. I said, no, because that's the way Hollywood would do it. You would have a girl that loves her books. She would be, the, the captain would be burning books and she would rescue them. <laughs> All the shit that you would get in free will, you know, like the kid. And I said, you know, the only way you're gonna know the girl reads and has her imagination is, that when, she, is when she tells the story to her brother. We already saw her, she has books, she carries them everywhere, but the fact that she can invent a story for the brother, 
That's the highest form of imagination. And, and, and then they said, well, she at least has to see the captain murder someone so that she escapes from that reality. I said, no. No, because when you're a kid, in 10 seconds you know who's a motherfucker. In 10 seconds you know who you need to be afraid of. And what you shouldn't do and what you should do. Instinctively, children are wiser. And you know, she doesn't need that. She's going to live with, the, with, with a piece of crap human being. That's all she needs to know. She is losing her mother to this guy. You know, so you know, you try not to, you try not to follow Sid Field and Robert McKee, and you try not to have a manual that tells you how to do it. You do it by instinct and by going, let me do it another way. If you're not doing a Hollywood film or this and that, you have to say, screw it, let's break the rules every time we can. And I, I still do it even in the Hollywood film. Now, in writing with the characters in a book, what I love is that. Literary, uh, literary writing is entirely liberating for me. Because in, in screenplay, you have to write in present. You have to say, so-and-so goes to the window. He opens it. And I, I took three years of screenplay writing, and my teacher used to say, if you put an, an, uh, an adjective in the, in the page, you've got to prove me how you're going to show me and allow me to hear that adjective. You have to describe the show to me. And if it's not a scene, it, you, you know, like a, you read Hollywood screenplays and they're loaded with fake descriptions. They say, Joe comes into the door. You can see from the way he walks that he's a man that will take no for an answer. Yeah, and, and you go, when you shoot that thing, it's just fucking Joe walking in. <laughs> it's not true. It's fake writing. In the same way in literature, you are allowed to do that. You can do that, but you've got to be very careful. And you know, I think that you have to craft it in a way that you don't give the audience all the information they need. You show them only enough for them to start thinking about it. That's different. You do a partnership. You do a partnership. And if, 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 there will be a large portion of the audience that will say they didn't like the book or they didn't like the movie. But if you give them completely on how they remember the feel of their father's gloves and the in the, in the steering wheel and how they saw it. And, 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 you, and you go, you know, you're Marcel Proust and the fucking Madeleine for, you know, just because a guy is waiting for the light to change. So you, you have to be careful not to get carried away. But now and then you can do it. You gotta just remember, movies or writing is a partnership with the reader. The worst thing you can do is render the reader or the audience uh, inactive. It has to be a partnership. And now and then, now and then, you're gonna take a hostage and shoot it on the head. But they believe you are a motherfucker. <laughs> it's, a, it's a deal, because half the audience is gonna say, show me, show me. Ah, you're not gonna do that. Ah, fuck. And you do it, and then they go, mm -hmm. <laughs> I wonder what he'll do next. We got one more question. Right there. She wants to know why everybody wants zombies and vampires. I think that vampires are pretty easy, in the sense that, um, pretty easy to know why, at least I think so. 
that, you know, the moment the vampire is birthed by Polidori in the Western writing, uh, with, with, with his short story, The Vampire, he is basing it on, on, uh, on Byron. And he hates and loves Byron. So he describes Lord Byron in the character of Lord Rutman. He describes him both as a monster that is draining life and as a creature of fascination and power, which he had. I think Polidori had a man crush. You know, I hope no one is a descendant of Polidori that says, you're wrong. I think he had a big man crush on Byron, and he think he was ambivalent about it, and then he wrote the story, and there he was birthing. The, the classical European lore is all parasitic vampires. There was not attractive vampires before. So Polidori creates it, and that stalker runs with it. And you keep going through, through the ages. And I think that the reason why we embrace the romantic side of vampirism right now is because I think that there is no deeper bond than a bond that it births you again. You know, male or female, it makes no difference. The deepest communion you can have with the other is for that person to give you a new life, to exclude, exclude you and bless you from being exempt from everything mundane. From now on, you will live forever. From now on, there will be no rules. From now on, you will not die. From now on, you can have what you want. From now on, there is nothing moral, ethical, or human binding. And I am you, and you are me. And there is, it's a perfect, perfect commitment. It's the ultimate spiritual fusion. It's, it's a perfect license to dream about romance in an era where, you know, you're going to Google the motherfucker and find out how much he makes. If you're going to share an apartment, you know, how many times you're going to screw with him. You know, it's all regimented in a way that is entirely mundane, you know? And I think that these things allow you to pop, pop in, the, in a realm of fantasy that is absolutely uh, alluring. The vampire of the ultimate bad boy that is going to sequester you into the night and give you license to go wild is, is quite easy, female or male. I mean, I think that... Uh, I prefer the pansexuality of Anne than the prudishness of today, you know, in the, in the twilight. That's my preference. I prefer freedom to come without chastity, you know? But that's, that's my own take on the thing. You know, I, I, I'd rather see liberation be a real liberation than have any dogmas. Uh, but, you know, they are valid expressions of the same myth. This, the beauty of vampires, vampires survive for one reason but in literature. They survive for the same reason the vampire survives as an entity, because of adaptability. Because they can be so many things when you need them to be. Those are the great symbols. In literature, there are minor, minor characters and minor symbols that only work in ascribed circumstances. In order for that little beast to survive, you create a perfect terrarium around it. And they survive in a short or a novel, you know, when you create the perfect environment. But then there are the big ones, the motherfuckers, the mother of all things, dragons, vampires, that are a different thing for every culture, a different thing for every reader. They can be the heartbreakers of luck and faith and beauty, or they can be the destroyers. They can be the apocalypse or salvation. And I think that that is fascinating right now. Zombies, I just think that, that I truly believe that the more we approximate the fascism of perfection, the more we are attracted to decay as a society. And the, and the neo-Goth movement comes out of that. 
out of, out of the need to own that. I think uh, futility, mortality uh, are things that, that actually make us live. In the same way, in the stream, there's a moment where Sidrachan loses his faith. He loses his faith in Drablis, and he doesn't believe in God anymore. And when he meets the master, the, the greatest black darkness of all, he understands that if such a darkness can exist, there must be an opposing light. That is also possible. The tragedy in our lives is that we don't see absolutes. And we see, we see politically correct guys lying on us, and politically incorrect lies, guys lying on us. So, you know, there is such a gray area, gray area that anything that takes a stance, zombies or vampires, is going to be instantly, instantly attracted. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.